So many women whom we have come to admire in our denomination have made their marks, or perhaps it would be more just and poetic to say that they have struck their wild flourishes of courage and bravura calls to commitment as they sought out to improve the lots in life of those who were discouraged, undervalued, or mistreated. There are so many women that we could talk about, but because we have been so affected by recent elections, both national and local, and because voting rights are on the line in this modern day, let's pay homage to those who fought for women's suffrage. When I was a child, I thought the word was suffrage and that women's suffrage movement was aimed at helping women have better lives because they were being told what to do by men, from not being able to get an education, and from just not having much freedom to make their own choices. It turns out that my youthful analysis was not that far from wrong because in old French suffrage, means intercessory prayers or pleas on behalf of others. It seems that women were in need of some intercession and someone to plead for justice and mercy to help ameliorate their misery and end their servitude. To find relief from the very real pressure that was keeping them from rising to their full potential. To join the roles of the first class, to be first class citizens. So the right to vote is intercession. It is intercession in its most high and holy form. Before we leap into the suffrage era, we need to circle back just a bit because suffrage didn't just spring out of a vacuum. Between 1890 and 1920, this country was engaged in what has become called the progressive era. And according to writings from the Eleanor Roosevelt Papers Project at George Washington University, because of problems arising out of rapidly growing industrialism, you know, people wanted to get rich. Problems of poverty, violence, greed, racism, class, and warfare were becoming more and more egregious. Pro progressives of that, area, of that era rejected social Darwinism in favor of striving to provide for good education and safe pl places to work. People of that era were saying that people shouldn't be blamed for their natural or biological shortcomings. That was how people were viewed at, at the start of social Darwinism. It was during the progressive era that women's work spread outside the home and into the community. Carrie Nation was out axing saloons. She was out there for her sisters, and she was out there because she wanted to protect women and children from physical 
abuse and financial irresponsibility of alcoholic men. Uh, uh, we know not everyone is an irresponsible alcoholic, but in the spirit of Carry Nation, we have to say that protecting the lives of women and children, even with an ax, was a good thing to do. And there was Margaret Sanger who was publicly stomping for women's rights to have control over their own bodies so that they would not die from having more children than their fragile bodies could handle. Yes, women were becoming activists. They banded together in social clubs and spearheaded efforts to improve local conditions, which eventually led to statewide, then countrywide improvements. And according to articles of the time, the achievements from these women, who of course largely went unnamed, included clean water and trash collection, hot lunches at schools, community playgrounds, fire codes for office buildings, and public libraries. In addition, at that time, women were considered the moral guardian and the protector of the home. So using this ideology as a springboard, women began arguing that they should move into the public domain, where they would be allowed to express their concerns and ideas in the public sphere. Not just their neighborhoods, not at just their club meetings. Women became organized and political, lobbying for better education for their children, better health care, and an end to government corruption. So, at that time during the progressive era, with their credibility at its zenith and with the righteousness of their success, women began to seek the prize that would make them even more influential as they worked toward change, as they worked to make the world a better place and to make their voices more powerful. They wanted the vote. They were most often called suffragettes. You know, adding E-T-T-E -T -T -E to a word feminizes it, and it is used to address something as diminutive. But you know, there is nothing small about the accomplishments of the women and men, and men, who were disowned by family and friends, who struggled against violence and jeers of the opposed, who were thrown in jail and treated horribly, or who worked tirelessly for years to bring women the right to vote. Suffragists faced animosity within their families and public ridicule. Imagine facing this sort of rhetoric as you're fighting for your rights, spewing from the likes of John Boyle O'Reilly, who was a well-known journalist at the time. And for some reason, I have this vision of him with his, in a vest and sitting around with his, <laughs> and probably a, a cigar somewhere close. This is what he said. Women's suffrage is an unjust, unreasonable, unspiritual abnormality. It is a hard, undigested, tasteless, 
devitalized proposition. It is half-fledged, unmusical, Promethean abomination. It is a quack ballast to, to reduce masculinity even by the obliteration of femininity. Well, I didn't know what ballast meant, so I had to look it up. Ballas is defined as a big wad of food about to be swallowed or a large pill given by veterinarians. So either way, Mr. O'Reilly and many others had the idea of women getting the vote and said that it was emasculating and a hard pill to swallow. Suffragists kept the faith and fought on regardless of the obstacles put in their way. And some of the foremost names in the suffrage movement are those of Unitarian and Universalist women. And I'll talk about three of those who are either officially of our faith or who are so closely aligned that they have been claimed by us. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Olympia Brown. Unitarian Elizabeth Cady Stanton, born in 1815, was not only a suffragist, but she was an abolitionist, an author, a wife, and mother who worked for women's rights. Stanton was a key organizer of the 1848 Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls, New York, where she introduced the Declaration of Sentiments, which she had written. And that document described ways in which women were being discriminated against and what their rights should be as citizens. Now it was the combination of these two things, the convention and the de declaration, that launched the struggle for women's rights and women's suffrage. Stanton and Susan B. Anthony became friends and were partners in their activist efforts. Olivia Cady was the writer and the strategist who stayed home with her family. And Susan B. was the organizer who traveled widely and was subjected to the animosity of the public. Ironically, both women were abolitionists who became disillusioned as the arguments and amendments fighting for free black men to get the vote were established. When the 15th Amendment added the word male into the Constitution for the first time and allowed freedmen to vote, Anthony became adamant that this was a mistake and said that educated white women would be better voters than ignorant black men or immigrant men. In the late, in the late 1860s, she even portrayed the vote of freedom as threatening the safety of white women. We can forgive her. Because despite her faults, she was a tireless fighter for women's rights and against the ravages of dangerous abortions. And in fact, we did honor her. She was the first woman to have her money her, her face on um, United States currency. And finally, 
Olympia Brown. Now, rarely could there be an address about influential Unitarian or Universalist women without mentioning Olympia Brown. She happened to be one of the few suffragists who lived long enough to see women get the vote. Olympia Brown was truly a pioneering woman, and she was born in 1835, led a remarkable life by any standard, and it was filled with challenges at almost every turn. She was among a few women of her time to receive a college degree, and then she decided to attend theological school. Of course, she was denied. She was denied, but she kept trying time and time again. And then she got a letter that she thought was inviting her to come to a college, um, St. Lawrence University. She arrived there, and the president was stunned because he thought his letter was discouraging her. But she couldn't be discouraged. So Brown, a universalist, was the first woman to graduate from a theological school and among the first to be ordained. In 1847, she left parish ministry to go to Kansas to campaign for the women's suffrage amendment. Only about one-third of the population, and remember all that only men could vote at that time, but one-third of them voted for the amendment and that was considered a moral victory. Eventually, Reverend Brown returned to parish ministry and continued to work tirelessly for the women's movement. And in 1920, she had the opportunity to speak at the church that is named for her, the Olympia Brown Unitarian Universalist Church in Racine, Wisconsin. And of the suffrage movement, she said, the grandest thing has been the lifting of the gates and the opening of the doors to women of America, giving liberty to 27 million women, thus opening to them a new and larger life and a higher ideal. So let's leap forward about 100 years. Because we, as Unitarian Universalists, are about to make voting history. We have done it with the last two presidential elections in our association. In our most, his most recent history, the UUA has been headed by an African-American male and a Latinx male, respectively William Sinkford and Peter Morales who resigned recently. And in 2017, a female will lead the way. Although our denomination has called two people of color to be president, there is a fear that we would never be able to elect a woman. And so, this history that is unfolding is going to produce a woman as president. We know a woman will be president because all the candidates are women. Originally, the, the nominating committee selected two women, one 
dropped out and two more petitioned in. And one of the things that is a little, maybe a little troubling is that we thought that we could only elect a woman if we had only women as candidates. Well, on Saturday, I had the honor of moderating the candidates forum for the Mid-America Regions Ministry Days. Quite an honor, and I don't think I'll be an asterisk in any history books, but I, I feel that I have been a part of history by being able to moderate uh, that conversation. Now, the first question was supposed to be something kind of lighthearted and um, an icebreaker. And I, I had read that one minister had uh, asked in a previous uh, debate, um, what would you choose as a superpower? Well, I knew I couldn't do that one, although I thought that's pretty cute. So I decided on where are you in birth order and how does that inform your leadership style and your ability to play nicely with others? <laughs> well, I've got a laugh there too, okay. So I have to tell you that their responses were very revealing. Uh, the first to answer was Reverend Jean Pupke, who's a senior minister at First UU Church in Richmond, Virginia. Jean has been a nun and had formerly served in executive positions in corporate America. Jean said that being the oldest of seven in a house with only one bathroom had given her organizational skills. <laughs> but also, being the oldest of seven made her a protector and required her to be ever mindful that she was in a position to serve others. So she sees service as one of the primary objectives in her ministry. Reverend Susan Fredericks Gray is a senior minister of the UU Congregation of Phoenix, and she was the lead organizer of the Arizona Immigration Ministry, and that is the group that provided us with Justice GA in Phoenix. Susan was the youngest child and described herself as the glue that held everything together for her family. And she said that that position in her family showed her the importance of unity and bonding together in a common cause. The Reverend Allison Miller has been senior minister of Morristown Unitarian Fellowship since 2005, and she's currently the chair of the board of the church Church of the Larger Fellowship, and if you're not familiar with that, um, we do have an online presence that provides services um, that make it accessible for people all over the world to hear the message of Unitarian Universalism. Allison was the older child of two, and her younger brother had developmental delays and because of that, and the fact that she also had a birth illness that had to be treated with chemo chemotherapy. So she has found herself with a lifelong 
disability and she feels that she is very attuned to the needs of others. I don't know how we could have three more outstanding candidates and many people have commented that any of the three women would make a fine president and leader. Many have asked, is it possible to select all three? Susan Fredericks Gray for her leadership in social justice, Allison Miller for her spiritual direction and understanding of ableist issues, and Jean Pupke for her organizational and process skills. Well, this, converse, this congregation is going to have a number of delegates who will vote in this unprecedented historic election in June in New Orleans at General Assembly. We will elect a woman and she will make history. This would not be possible if it were not for our courageous suffragist predecessors who fought and suffered and endured so that women could be seen and heard outside their homes. And as Olympia Brown said, the grandest thing has been the lifting of the gates and the opening of the doors to the women of America and to the Unitarian Universalist Association. So women could vote. So all of us could vote. May we always exercise our right to vote and remember that the right to vote is intercession. It is intercession in one of its most high and holy forms. Thank you.